Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, and perhaps some other platforms that we are on. Thanks to Anchor.fm. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button down below this video. If you're in full screen mode, get out of full screen mode and you'll see that button to the bottom right, I believe, of the video screen. And if you don't mind, also click the bell for continued notifications. Otherwise, you probably will not be notified whenever there is new content posted on this channel. I do apologize for a slight um, uh, compromise in the quality of, of my voice. Not that there's much quality there in the first place, but uh, I, I, I seem to be on the edge. You know, over the last few days, I've been on the edge of losing <clears throat> my voice. Yesterday, throughout the Lord's Day, I every Lord's Day, I, I teach Sunday school, and then I preach two services. And so I do a lot with my voice on the Lord's Day. And yesterday the Lord was gracious to uh, to sustain my voice uh, through all of it. And we had a blessed time together as a church. Today what I want to do is I want to look at the First Things article recently published. Um, and, and it is on the website First Things. Um, I do believe that First Things, let me just double check here. Uh, yeah, firstthings.com. So that's a pretty helpful website. It's got a lot of content, um, a lot of articles show up on there that are that are actually worth reading. Um, not everything on there is, you know, uh, something that we would, you know, want to subscribe to. But but there are some good things uh, that show up from time to time on there. And one of them is this Edward Fazer article uh, that uh, is is critical of the failure of natural theology. Jeff Johnson's recent um, book that was published uh, last September, I believe, or at least it rolled out last September. Um, and this article is titled Doubting Thomas, and again, it's by Dr. Edward Fazer. There are several things uh, about this article that I would like to bring out. Um, and I know that there is probably going to be a, a firestorm uh, of responses, maybe not a firestorm, but there will be a wave of, of responses. I've already heard some, you know, uh, some, you know, allusions to uh, potential uh, future responses to this article. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, to get in front of some of that as much as I could um, here. So, um, now, th the first thing that I want to, before we actually get into the subject matter of the article here. Um, the first thing I want to look at is is the dark Calvinist trope uh, or the um, you know the kind of uh, uh, overbearing uh, you know um, stoic Puritan uh, characterization that is often, applied to uh, the Puritan Protestants of the 17th century. And part of the unfortunate situation here, or part of why the situation or the circumstance is unfortunate, is because that stereotype is, I think, being met in some ways. And that's, that's, that's at, least it, at least that's the perception of those who stand outside of the Baptist confessional tradition is that, you know, we are in virtue of content like Dr. Johnson's book, we are meeting that stereotype to some extent. And that's how Phaser 
begins his article, which was, you know, sad to me. Uh, I don't, I don't think that that should be a stereotype that could be, that could be rightfully attributed to, to the Puritans historically, uh, neither to you know, uh, you know, Reformed or particular Baptists contemporarily. Um, but he begins his article saying, uh, H.L. Mencken famously defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, unquote. And then he says, Puritans and Calvinists more generally have a reputation for harboring an ungenerous suspicion of even the most innocent delights as, sinful, as sinfulness in disguise. And he says, you know, I, I don't think Fazer's meaning to make a, 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 a joust there at Puritanism. Really, I don't. Because he says, though this reputation is not necessarily justified, I couldn't help thinking of Mencken's barb as I read the opening pages of Calvinist pastor Jeffrey Johnson's book, The Failure of Natural Theology. Unfortunately, the lion's share of Calvinistic academia would come out and say, well, Johnson is most certainly not an accurate representation of confessional Calvinism, and they would be accurate in, in making that very important qualification. Um, and so the trope is, is not true. I don't think even looking back historically, and I think Fazer even to some extent admits this, you know, the... the uh, uh, maybe not so much the trope, but the the caricature of of the Puritans is is not true historically, and it, it's 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 not true contemporarily. Though we do have some who seem to be you know stridently meeting the stereotype in some ways, um, and and Fazer acknowledges that that's not necessarily a, an a, an accurate you know characterization of uh, the Puritan movement. So the trope's not necessarily true. But if that if that characterization or that caricature is indeed a caricature and thus not ac an accurate representation, it would follow that it's a misrepresentation of our tradition, right? But then you have to ask, who's misrepresenting us here? Because I don't think it's Phaser. I don't think Phaser's misrepresenting us in in the opening paragraphs of his of his letter because he admits that this is not necessarily an accurate representation. It's not necessarily justified, he says. Um, so if that's the case, who, who is misrepresenting Calvinism here? Who is misrepresenting uh, historical confessional Baptist theology? And I think that that would fall in the lap of, of Dr. Jeffrey Johnson uh, with, with his book on natural theology. Unfortunately, that's the case. I, I, I don't want to um, come across as overly accusatory of a brother, um, because uh, Dr. Johnson is a brother. But I do want it to be known that his book is not at all uh, representing, representing confessional Calvinism or confessional Reformed Baptist theology, particular Baptist theology. And so I think that's a very important place to start. And so I think there's a misrepresentation of how Baptists, even just taking that narrow that narrow tradition, um, and and saying you know that that Baptists historically have not understood not only natural theology like Jeff Johnson understands it, but the doctrine of God more importantly. Uh, historically, Baptists have not understood the doctrine of God as as Jeffrey uh, presents it in his book. And so I, I think a lot of what's going on here is rhetorical. There's a lot of sloppiness in Dr. Johnson's book. 
Um, and and that's all. That's in many in many respects. That's what Doctor Phaser is bringing out in his article is this kind of academic sloppiness of Doctor Johnson's. But for example, in the failure of natural theology, uh, straddling pages seventy five and seventy six, um, Doctor Johnson says, uh, although Plotinus or Plotinus didn't leave behind any writings, he above all others had the largest influence in repopularizing Platonic thought. That's a direct quote from pages 75 to 76. And um, <laughs> Phaser responds to that as, as follows. He says, Johnson tells us that the, Neoplat that the Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, who influenced Aquinas, didn't leave behind any writings. That will come as a surprise to the generations of students and scholars who have poured over Plotinus's Enneads, which is the volume that we have extant from it. It was quite expansive as well, not to mention the publishers who have long kept the work in print. And uh, so th the point here is, is that that quotation is just factually inaccurate. Uh, it, 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 it does not mesh with, with the reality, right? It's, it's just not true. Um, Plotinus did leave behind uh, a body of work. In fact, what I what I did uh, when reading this this uh, Phaser article is I thought, you know, how how easy maybe that Plotinus you know volume is difficult to find. Maybe it's kind of locked up in some Brill uh, safe somewhere and costs you know three hundred dollars or or you know something like that. And it's just not easily found. Maybe it's not in print anymore or something like that. Um, and so I just did, you know, just search Plotinus on Amazon. And, you know, one of the first things that comes up is Plotinus, the Enneads, right? And you can buy it brand new here, hardback, $47.49. Uh, actually, that's the paperback. So you can buy the paperback there for $47. You can buy it new. Hardcover is a little bit expensive, you know, $130 or something like that. Uh, you can buy an ebook version. For thirty bucks, so it's it's you know it's available, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's you know not somewhere online as well, or at least parts of it online uh, that are cited quite extensively, also. So um, just kind of a superficial search on the Amazon store um, uh, leads to the contrary conclusion that indeed Plotinus did leave writings behind, um, and and that I think just shows there's there's a there's a general vein throughout the failure of natural theology, of scholarly superficiality. And I think it, it leaves Johnson vulnerable to some very easy, low-hanging fruit-esque criticisms like this one that Fazer points out. And I think it hurts Dr. Johnson's credibility as a scholar as well. And I don't want that for him. Uh, I don't think anybody who loves him and cares about him wants that for him. And, 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 and also, you know, another layer to that is, is that reflects kind of broadly on on Baptist scholarship in general. So it, it's just not a good witness, I don't think. Uh, you know, much of what's what's in the book is a, is a good witness as to, you know, the quality of Baptist scholarship that has existed in the past. And so we're, we're, we're being misrepresented, is what I'm trying to say. And, and Dr. Johnson is, is shorting himself of, uh, you know, academic credibility, and not only academic credibility, but pastoral credibility as well. Um, you know, let's, let's move out from the halls of academia and just, and just suggest that, you know, this, this could reflect upon, um, you know, his pastoral capabilities as well.
Um, and, and I'm not making any definite statement that indeed it does reflect something, uh, you know, uh, deficient in his pastoral abilities. Um, but, but the work speaks, the, the fruit of one's labors speaks, and, and we're to be discerning according to the fruit of one's labors. And so I don't think it's totally, you know, uh, wrong to, uh, to question that kind of connection. Um, and, uh, and, and so let's, let's move on. Let's move on from there and not and not stick too too long on the on the personal aspect here because I do want to keep it uh, more you know official and and professional. Um, you know the other thing is 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 there's some misattributed material. It seems maybe Dr. Johnson has a good reason for that, and and I will let him speak for that. I'm not going to accuse him of you know purposefully you know misattributing content to. Thomas Aquinas, I think this is probably this is probably just an honest mistake, uh, but again, it attests to you know kind of the um, kind of the uh, the sloppiness that exists in the failure of natural theology. Um, when you're looking at uh, the characterization of the second way in Dr. Johnson's book which is, uh, let me see here, I think it's just after page 76. It may start on page 76 as well. Hold on, let me double check. Um, so you have, let's see. Um, can't, don't want to. I didn't put the, uh, the reason I'm doing this right now is because I didn't put the page number in my outline, so I you know, kind of put everyone at a, at a disadvantage there. That's my fault. I apologize. Um, where are, let's see, I think it's actually, yeah, here we go. Um, so it begins, I, it would actually be on page 101 of The Failure of Natural Theology. That's Dr. Johnson's book, so page 101. I don't know if you guys can see that. It looks kind of washed out, but... Um, Phaser claims that uh, that Dr. Johnson has misattributed a, a, a block quote on that page 101 uh, to Thomas Aquinas when actually it, it comes from a different source, which is a big deal. Um, it, it, it can be an honest mistake, of course, and, and I think it probably is, but it's still it's still a big deal, and it attests to the kind of the quality of the work that you find in the failure of natural theology. That's what Phaser's getting at here, and. Um, what, what Johnson says, Thomas said, is efficient causes do not extend ad infinitum into the past. What Thomas apparently really said in his systematic, or not systematic, but in his Summa Theologiae, uh, book one, and I think it's question one, uh, or question two, it's part one, question two, article three, so it's like page 13 in the Christian Classics version, if you have the five volume, the big volumized set. And uh, this this rendering is also available on Aquinas.cc, where all of most of Aquinas's works are available digitally for free. Uh, Aquinas actually said, "Now, in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity." And so it's 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 similar in wording, but it's actually significant, uh, significantly distinct from from what Johnson actually quoted. And the whole block quote is significantly different than you know what Aquinas actually said in all of the major English translations or in most of the ma major English translations. And, and what, what, uh, what, um, Phaser says here is that, uh, 
that there is really uh, no place in any of the English translations and any of the the translations of, of, of Thomas Asuma that you could get that quote to say, or that block quote in Jeffrey's book to say what it, what it says there. In other words, there's no rendering like that in any of the translations that have been published of Thomas Asuma Theologiae. He says, purportedly quoting the passage from the Summa Theologiae, wherein Aquinas presents his second way of proving God's existence, Johnson attributes to this argument the claim that efficient causes do not extend ad infinitum into the past. Not only is this not what the text says, but when proving God's existence, Aquinas pur purposefully avoids the question of whether the series of causes extending backward into the past had a beginning. A little time with Google, he says, and this is the big you know, issue. A little time with Google reveals that what Johnson presents as a passage from the Summa was not taken from any translation of that work, but instead was cut and pasted from a random source on the internet purporting to reconstruct Aquinas's reasoning. Now, did it come from a source on the internet? I'm not sure. Um, and uh, so I actually uh, uh, emailed Dr. Fazer to to uh, get some some links in specific and uh, he did provide me with some of those. Um, so that that quote, that that block quote that you see on page 101 of the failure of natural theology, uh, comes from an article on Medium.com called "Deconstructing Thomas Aquinas's Five Proofs of a Creator" um, by Alex Bayman. So that's one place you can find it. Another place is Quizlet.com, Philosophy Final, you know, Final Flashcards. That website, Quizlet, um, and there's I'll provide that link because it's a complicated link URL there, uh, and I'll provide that link in the show notes below. And there's some closer but not exact uh, source quotations on uh, the um, sjsu.edu website St. Thomas and St. Thomas Aquinas the existence of God can be proved in five ways it's uh, San Jose State University <clears throat> and uh, in the, in a book uh, that is titled to know God uh, that you can find on books.google.com again that book is called to know God so that 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 quote at least appears uh, similarly in in that volume as well so um so this quote came, it, it appears, and again, we'll give Johnson the last word on this to, to clarify, you know, what he was doing here with this block quote on page 101, but it appears that this came from another source, not Thomas Aquinas, right? It came from some other source, whether it was a summary or commentary on Thomas's <clears throat> uh, five ways, or, or specifically his second, his second way, uh, or whether it was kind of a restatement of the argument. It did not come directly from... Thomas Aquinas's work, even though Dr. Johnson attributes it to the Summa Theologiae. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of a big deal. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're writing a book and you're, you know, you're citing various sources and quoting them at length, you probably want to make sure to, to get their words. And, um, you know, that's kind of a, a properly basic axiomatic expectation in, in really writing anything, but especially in the academic world. The other thing Johnson does, and we, we all know that this is what happens in, in this book because, you know, this is nothing new. I've spoken to this in the videos that I've made on the on the issue and uh, in my reviews, my three-part review, I bring this out as well. But we know that in Dr. Johnson's book, he denies um, uh, Actus Purus 
and um, he, uh, he he character in the midst of doing that he characterizes the or he tries he makes an attempt to characterize the classical position and he does so not so lucidly so he says you know God doesn't have any potencies uh, you know full stop and I think by that he means God does not have any passive potencies which is true so I think he's 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 striving here to characterize the argument accurately. Uh, or the classical side accurately, but it is it is worth clarifying, and this is one of the things that Phaser does. He he actually says um, Johnson attributes to Aquinas the view that God does not have any potencies, which he says makes it mysterious how God could exercise any active potencies or powers in creating the world. But what Aquinas actually says in Summa Theologiae, uh, Book One Twenty Five. Uh, I guess question 25, article 1, I think is how I read that, is that though God lacks any passive potency, which is the capacity to undergo change, he is supreme in active potency, which is the power to bring about effects in other things. Further, because Aquinas denies that philosophy can prove that the universe had a temporal beginning, Johnson argues that Aquinas makes God and the universe equally absolute, but this ignores Aquinas' well-known view that the universe could not exist even for a moment unless God were conserving it in being which would be true whether or not it has always existed. Okay, so classical theism remotes or removes all passive potency from God. The capacity to be acted upon is removed from God. So God cannot be acted upon. The potential to be actualized in any way, shape, or form is removed from God. So there's nothing inactual in God, or there's nothing potential in God. There's not a principle of potentiality in the divine essence. Um you know, which, which must undergo some kind of actualization, right? So that's all removed. But there is active potency in God, which is just his power, right? Active potency and, and omnipotence are synonyms. Um, so God is fully or purely actual, and that means that God has the power to affect change in other things, right? So God has the power, for example, to bring, uh, you know, the world uh, ex nihilo, uh, you know, creation ex nihilo, and then he has the power to affect change upon that creation without undergoing any change in himself. If he underwent any change in himself in the affecting change in creation as creatures undergo change in themselves when they affect change in something else, then that would imply that there is passive potency in God where there's this kind of give and take relationship between God and creation. So God would be acting upon creation, but in acting upon creation would undergo himself a change. That kind of relationship between God and creation is remoted, but that kind of relationship between God and creation is actually assumed and seemingly fundamental in Johnson's work. Johnson assumes that there must be some kind of mobility in God which enables God then to affect change in other things. And that's to imply that God undergoes change or undergoes movement with the creation, right? In in affecting change in creation, that implies some kind of motion in God, which is a which is a wrong way to understand the relationship between God and his creation, and it's a wrong way to understand God and himself in that he has no passive potency. He has no potential to undergo any kind of change or motion in himself. And he doesn't need a potential to undergo any kind of motion in order to affect change in other things, right? That just does not logically follow. It may be difficult to conceive of that in our in our minds, but that just is not, it's not logically inept to suggest that God does not need to have any sort of passive potentiality in himself in order to affect change in other things. God can be purely actual without any potential to move or change 
and yet affect change in creatures, right? And so uh, th that part is not, that, that kind of angle of classical theism is not clearly delineated in, in, in Johnson's book, which is a, uh, a disservice to the reader, I think. And then Johnson does other things, like, for example, he assumes that uh, Thomas's uh, analogy or his version of analogy is, is equal to that of metaphor. And, um, and, and Fazer addresses this in his article. He says, Johnson repeatedly claims that for Aquinas, all statements about God are merely symbolic and metaphorical. In fact, Aquinas explicitly says that not all names are applied to God in a metaphorical sense, but there are some which are said of him in their literal sense. So Thomas Aquinas explicitly denies that an analogy is all metaphorical. Um, and so while all metaphor is analogy, not all analogy, especially in Thomas's case, not all analogy is metaphorical. Um, and so Dr. Johnson misrepresents Thomas on that point and doesn't bring out the distinctions that Thomas himself makes regarding analogy. Um, you know, and, and there are there are important distinctions that Thomas himself makes regarding analogy. For example, you know, he distinguishes between different kinds of similitudes, equal similitude or equal likeness, imperfect likeness, or analogical likeness. Um, and then you have the kind of an analogy that Thomas is talking about, which is something akin to proportion proportionality. Um, you know, necessary versus contingent existence, for example. Uh, you know, we might apply the word or the term existence um, to contingent beings, which exist, um, but and we also apply that word existence to necessary being, right? We say God exists, um, but the way in which we apply existence to necessary being is analogical. That is to say that there's something like existence in the necessary being of God or in or or in God, um, which is analogically proportionate to how we understand it in, in this world. But it, it's not the exact same thing. It's, there's no univocal point of, of commonality. There's no univocal core that, that connects that language. There's, 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 um, there's a, uh, a likeness, but we can't, we can't say exactly what that likeness is because we're dealing with an infinite reality, i.e. God. And so we can say, you know, that there is a likeness of proportionality or that there is a likeness of analogy between uh, creaturely existence and God's existence, but we can't say what that likeness exact, exactly consists of, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's very important to, to note. You know, other things that, that play into Aquinas' understanding of analogy, God is not located within a genus. God cannot be categorized within a genus. Otherwise, God would participate in some other perfection that's not himself and would be able to be characterized by, by something that is not himself. Um, and, and so we could place God in a category. A category could then describe him uh, or characterize him or categorize him, um, and he would be dependent on that categorical perfection or that categorical property to be who he is. Well, God does not fit inside of a genus, right? So God, God is not located within a genus. And so we can't, you know, when we say, um, you know, that, that, that creatures and, and God have being, for example, 
in in common. What we'd mean in 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 saying that they have being in common, we don't mean that they share in the same genus of being, that they're both placed in the category of being. Rather, we would say that that commonality is is strictly analogical and uh, not generic. Uh, it's not it's not univocal. It doesn't categorize God and creatures as if God and creatures were just at different ends of the same spectrum of being. Right? That's not what's going on in in Thomas's analogy. And so, all analogy is not metaphorical in Thomas, and, and Thomas himself actually points that out. But none of that is really brought out in the Johnson book, and that's what Fazer is getting out in his criticism here. And if you want to, to the, it's the last chapter, The Failure of Natural Theology, where Johnson actually talks about uh, analogical language. Hold on, let me make sure that's accurate. Yeah, it's chapter 9. Uh, beginning on page one, 175, where Dr. Johnson actually begins discussing analogical language in specific, and he never brings out really Thomas's full doctrine of, of analogy there. <clears throat> the other thing that, that uh, Dr. Fazer calls uh, Dr. Johnson to the mat on is that, uh, and I forgot that this happened, but and I didn't bring this out in my review, um, because I, I wasn't, you know, sitting there with Fazer's work open at the time. Um, but Dr. Johnson did use Fazer um, in an attempt to make it look like, you know, Fazer was agreeing with him um, in, in some sense. So in The Failure of Natural Theology, in his book on page 117, going into page 118 as well, uh, Johnson says, it may appear that God's nature can be derived from sense experience, from natural science, but such a conclusion is only a philosophical assumption, even one of the leading, and then he says, even one of the leading Thomistic scholars of our day, Edward Fazer, admits to this, and then he quotes, he barely quotes Edward Fazer. He quotes Edward Fazer saying, I do not, I, I do deny that arguments grounded in natural science alone can get you to classical theism, and, and Dr. Johnson is saying, well, you know, that's a, uh, that's either a willful agreement or it's a slip that that you know where where Fazer basically agree you know admits that he has to agree on that point. But Fazer clarifies on this in his article. He says this is a curious mischaracterization of my views. In the essay from which Johnson quotes, I argue that you cannot get to theism using the methods of physics as those methods are typically understood today. Huge difference right, as those methods are typically understood today, which are much narrower than the methods Aristotle included as part of physics, which was very, very broad for Aristotle, very, very narrow today. The natural sciences today uh, are, are viewed as a, uh, uh, basically an excursion, you know, uh, in the material universe um, under various, you know, areas or subjects, and, and that's it. Right, it's much more broader than that, classically speaking. As I go on to argue in that essay, if one does, if one does take on board Aristotle's methods, which these days are classified instead as are classified instead as parts of the philosophy of nature, then you can get to theism. So, he, so Dr. Johnson is taking Dr. Fazer out of context here, and uh, and so Fazer has to make that clarification again. It just attests to some of the the issues with the book as a whole. Um, and I just wanted to comment really on, on the sciences at this point. Johnson, 
when when Johnson uses the natural when he when he talks about natural science uh, throughout his book, um, what he's doing, and this is you know from what I can from what I can tell he's doing, is he's equivocating between the object of natural theology on the one hand and the contemporary definition of natural science on the other. And that's what Fazer's kind of getting at here, that there's an equivocation in Johnson's book, that, that Johnson is using the term natural science equivocally. Because classically, natural science would have been understood differently, you know, historically, than it would be today. And Johnson is, I think, confusing the contemporary definition of natural science with the object of natural theology. And that, that's, an, that's an inaccurate identification. For Thomas, those two things, natural theology or the object of natural theology and, and you know, the physical sciences would have been distinct, separate, or not totally separate, but distinct sciences. Um, today, you know, when we're talking about natural theology or when we're talking about natural science, they both obviously have the term nature or natural in common. But as applied to theology, it denotes natural as opposed to supernatural, uh, for example, special revelation, uh, it, it doesn't refer at all to modern Newtonian categories. Okay, It doesn't refer at all to modern Newtonian categories. As applied to modern science, however, the term natural, as it's applied to modern science, it refers to a knowledge derived through the observation of physical processes, physics in the broadest sense of the term, we might say. Uh, and so th those are two different uses of the word natural, but I think in Jeff's book, he's actually using that term equivocally, and he's accusing natural theology of essentially riding upon the natural Newtonian definition of the natural sciences, and that's just a massive mistake. Johnson simply does not understand, I don't think, the uh, the tree of sciences as it was realized and understood and assumed in the Middle Ages, as it was as it was kind of operative in that time and in that milieu. And so I think that puts, again, Johnson's volume at a huge disadvantage because he's not understanding these background categories, or at least it does not appear like he understands them. And then we get into the idea of immobility. And, and this is where, uh, where you know, um, he does this early on in the book, but uh, this is this is part of the reason why Dr. Johnson denies uh, pure actuality in his book. Johnson, the problem that Phaser has with it is that Johnson really never um, defines immobility. He, he and he, and he really doesn't. He never defines immobility technically. He never offers a technical definition of that term. And what he seems to do is he seems to confuse it with, uh, you know, his, well, or he seems to confuse, confuse what, what, what he's wanting, namely, you know, mobility in God. He's confusing that with, with what might be classically understood as active potency, which is why I said at the beginning of this video, this is really a, a rhetorical issue here. I think that Dr. Johnson wants a category, but, lack, but, he, but he wants it, he lacks it. Right? So he comes up with this denial of immobility and the denial of, of actus purus, all in the interest of, of getting to something that really classical theism already has on offer, but he's, he's not familiar with classical theism, so he doesn't know any better. So he ends up denying the whole schema uh, without fully exploring its cognates. 
Um, and so I think what he's doing is, is he's is he's rejecting Actus Puris because he doesn't know about active potency or the doctrine of God's omnipotence or all-powerfulness, um, the power in God to affect change in other things. He says in The Failure of Natural Theology on page 119, in other words, there is no passive potency in God. That's correct. God is what he does. He always is what he always has been doing. But on this basis, he criticizes that doctrine uh, on, on the basis of misunderstanding the implications of denying passive potency in God. In Failure Natural Theology, page 121, he says, Consequently, if God is good, perfect, immutable, and simple because he is immobile, then how is it possible for pure act to will anything other than his undifferentiated self? And all of this is, ref is resulting from a misunderstanding of what Actus Puris even is. And, and a full-fledged doctrine of God. And so I don't think that if Dr. Johnson would have been more familiar with, with classical theism, more broadly considered doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, more generally considered, um, he would have made these kinds of, 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 um, of rejections. Uh, again, on page 121, he says, How can the unmoved mover create anything new? How can motion have a beginning? If God created the universe, how is the universe not eternal? How does this not lead to pantheism? And here he's just not understanding, you know, the law of causality as it is applied to uh, the doctrine of, of, of God. Or theology property is not understanding how that is applied and, and understood, you know, throughout uh, a construal of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um. Phaser, to bring his article back up, he says, Aquinas, like other traditional theologians, holds that God is simple in the sense of not being made up of parts and immutable in the sense of not undergoing chains, change. Johnson says he agrees with Aquinas about that much, but, ob but objects to Aquinas' purported further attribution to God of something Johnson calls immobility. What is immobility? It isn't entirely clear, he says. Sometimes by immobility, Johnson seems to have in mind changelessness which is the same thing as immu immutability. But in other places, Johnson uses immobility to mean the absence of the willful exertion of power. Yet contrary to what Johnson asserts, Aquinas never denies that God willfully exerts power. As noted above, Aquinas holds that God is supreme in active power. Um, and I think the assumption, I, I think there's an underlying assumption here, a personalistic or mutualist assumption in Johnson's book that uh, God is, you know, such and such a being that must move if he is to create rather than, uh, rather than this unadulterated first mover that affects movement in creation without himself being moved. Um, actus puris or pure actuality determines the manner in which God creates that is without need of change or movement in order to do so and then you know to to move from that to the enigma of the beginning of time space and matter is I think uh, you know it, it can be done in a wrong way uh, it, the enigma of the beginning of time space and matter you know, the mystery of it, creation ex nihilo, is not to be uh, demystified in admitting change or motion in God. See, that's what I think Dr. Johnson is trying to do. He's trying to demystify 
creation ex nihilo by locating some kind of antecedent change or motion in God to explain creation ex nihilo and then all the changes that undergo uh, that, that creation undergoes once it's once it's going right um, and and I don't think that that should be what we do that's not the right method because if that were the case if you want to go to God and ascribe some kind of motion in God to explain creation ex nihilo then God would be composed. He would not be simple. He would be composed at basic of actuality and potentiality. Some part of God would need to move another part. His intellect, for example, would need to move the will. And that would be a, a, a clear case for divine complexity contrary to divine simplicity. It would be an outright rejection of the doctrine of divine simplicity. And that's why Fazer notes, Johnson's discussion of these matters is too wooly and superficial to be of much interest. But what he fails to see is that if his criticisms drew any blood at all, they would take down his own views, no less than Aquinas's. Um, and I think if Johnson were consistent, he would deny theism altogether. You, you cannot put motion in God. You cannot locate some antecedent change in God to explain creation ex nihilo because the second you do that, you destroy the independent, assay, self-existent God of Scripture. And so what Fazer is saying here is that if you're, if you're going to, if that's, if that's what you're going to do, if that's the kind of takedown you're going to go for, then you're going to take down your own position as well. Everything, everything gets taken down by this. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, you can't just, you, you know, you can't just accept your own, your own view from the implications of the way, uh, you know, of the way in which you're going about this, of, of the things that you're saying. Um, and then of course, you know, the kind of coming up here on the end of, um, uh, of Fazer's article, Fazer says the title of Johnson's book reflects another of its deeply muddled themes. Natural theology is the attempt to arrive at knowledge of the existence and nature of God through purely philosophical arguments. Johnson, like many other Calvinists, object to the very idea, though he tells us he has no problem with what he calls natural revelation. And then Fazer asks, what's the difference? Natural theology infers or reasons from the world of our experience to to a divine first cause with attributes such as omnipotence, omniscience, and perfect goodness. Johnson alleges that because this involves philosophical argumentation, it cannot be known by all or with certainty, and that in any event it amounts to relying on human wisdom to construct a mere idol. Natural revelation, by contrast, involves a certain and direct or non-inferential awareness of the true God's existence and nature, and one that is had by all human beings. Johnson claims that natural revelation in this sense is what biblical writers like St. Paul affirm, for instance, in the first chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Um, the first observation that, that Dr. Fazer makes, he says, it's, it's just silly to allege that because it relies on human reason, natural theology amounts to the construction of an idol. Then he says, this is the point that he makes, and I think it's a valid one, uh, because you have to apply these things consistently. Like if this is if this is what you're going to say about natural theology, you also have to say it. You, you also have to carry you know that that principle assumption through consistently uh, to other situations. 
And, and Fazer notes that. He says, you might as well say that the Bible pres- presents us with a, man, a man-made idol rather than the true God on the grounds that it is written in human languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and that we need to use our human eyeballs in order to read it and our human cognitive powers in order to understand it. So you, you have this problem of human reasoning or discursus, um, and, and Johnson along the lines of presuppositionalism, tries to solve that so-called problem of human reasoning or human discursion uh, by saying things like this on page 11 in Failure of Natural Theology. Natural theology assumes that we have the capacity to know a great deal about God on the basis of our own powers of reason and observation. And how he's going to solve that problem or what he perceives to be a problem is he's going to introduce natural revelation as an alternative to natural theology, rather than seeing natural revelation as the object of natural theology. Um, So here's how I want to explain this. I want to break down the problem as follows. Um, There are two objects of human knowledge, right? There are two objects here in this situation of human knowledge. You have nature on the one hand, and you have scripture on the other. Those are two sources of revelation right? Those are two sources of revelation or two objects of human knowledge. Apparently, it is erroneous to suggest man can know God through nature by use of his, uh, quote, own powers of reason and observation from page 11 of Failure of Natural Theology. So it's erroneous to suggest that man can look at nature and and deduce through his own powers of reason and observation that, number one, God exists, and then a few attributes of God. But somehow, and this is the inconsistency, somehow it's not erroneous to suggest man can know God through Scripture. Again, using what else but his own powers of reason and observation. I mean, isn't it the case that man has to use his own powers of reason and observation to read the words on the pages of the Bible? Isn't it, isn't it true that man has to use his own powers of reason and observation to categorize and appropriate those, uh, those words in the scriptures to within his intellect? And of course, you might have the retort The Holy Spirit regenerates man, and thus he can understand the text of Scripture. But my response to that would be, but isn't the Word the very instrument by which the Holy Spirit regenerates? If you see in Titus 3, 5 and elsewhere, the the, the Word of God is the very instrument by which the Holy Spirit regenerates man. And so if man can't understand Scripture in the first place through his own reason, right, through his own powers of observation that indeed God has supplied for him and sustains for him, then wouldn't it follow that uh, man could not understand the words of, of Scripture? If, if, man's, if, if man cannot, you know, use his own powers of reason and observation to read the Bible, then how does he read it? If man cannot understand the text through his own powers of reason and observation, then what meaning, if any, can we ascribe to the instrument of the Word of God? If the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God as an instrument to call man to himself, then what meaning does the instrument have if indeed man is not equipped to perceive the instrument at all? And so that's, an, that's the implication of jettisoning any and all validity of man's use of his own reason and powers of observation. 
that indeed God has given him in the first place. And I think Romans 1 and Romans 2 suggest that man's power of reason and observation, while compromised by sin, still maintain some integrity and are thus able to arrive at true conclusions. Contrary, I know, to Van Tilianism and, 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 and Clarkianism and all of that. And so hopefully this has been helpful. I, I just wanted to expound upon the Phaser article here. And, and Phaser didn't, uh, unfortunately, in his article, he didn't, um, he didn't cite any of these places uh, in Johnson's book. Uh, I, I don't think that any of his, his quotations of Johnson are, are dubious or anything like that. I just think he didn't happen to, to cite them. So, um, uh, or maybe he did, but it got taken out in editing. I don't know. Um, so I thought that it would be helpful to actually cite the places where this happens in this, um, in this video. And, and so it'll be a helpful way to, you know, you can watch this video and navigate Phaser's article and where Phaser's getting these things out of Johnson's book, uh, if you're interested in pursuing this discussion further. So if this was helpful to you, please give me a thumbs up, if not give me a thumbs down, comment, ask questions. That's always encouraged. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Guys, uh, check out uh, joshsummer.substack.com as well. There's both a free and paid subscription option. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.